Hey everybody, Paul here. I wanted to tell you a little bit about this unique episode that we have today. And yes, I do realize I might say unique is a description for my episodes maybe too frequently to the point in which at which maybe it diminishes the value of that word. But uh, today is actually a unique episode because I am on the other end of the interview process. I was recently invited by Paul Vanderclay. Maybe you remember Paul or you can scroll down in, and see in earlier episodes a discussion I had with Paul where I brought him on to my podcast. And Paul was the guy I called the, the pastor of the intellectual dark web. He was a guy that was pastoring by his own accounts, a, a fairly small church in California, and then kind of exploded on YouTube overnight. Um, having Jordan Peterson on his podcast, and now he gets you know tens of thousands of subscribers. It's uh, a pretty lively community that he's developed online, primarily via YouTube, though he does have an audio version of his podcast, where uh, this community is really trying to wrestle with some of the questions that we would, we would say are the big theological, philosophical, and meaning-making related questions of our day. So it was great to be on the other side. Paul wanted to bring me on to share a little bit of my background and my experiences as someone who grew up in more of a charismatic tradition and pretty charismatic at that. So some of the stories I tell Paul here, I've never talked about publicly. Some of them are quite weird and strange to many of you, and I understand that. I also want to say that uh, I am not necessarily endorsing all of my experiences as being uh, from God or the things that I've seen. I hope I make that really clear in the discussion, but I do bring them up as things I was processing with Paul as part of my unique background, deep, deep, deep in the charismatic tradition. So it was fun to get to share some of these stories, some of these things I hadn't ever talked about publicly. And, and some of these things I actually, I haven't thought about in years. I'm not in presently a very charismatic context, especially not as charismatic as the context I previously inhabited. So talking about the stuff was it was really fun to talk about with Paul. Um, I hope you enjoy hearing about them. And it, not only do we talk about my kind of journey in charismatic culture, but I talk with Paul about what what it means to connect and commune with God. And I talk about the problem of can we tell people with certainty that certain experiences that they have are not from God? What does that look like? And we also talk a bit about how, uh, as I've discussed in previous episodes, the link between what we've called spirit, aesthetic, and labor, and how aesthetic and labor are always making manifest the God that we actually worship. It is the true reflection of our deepest values. So I talk a bit with Paul about this, and we wrestle together with questions that we have about communion, about things that are often called means of grace or sacraments in the Christian tradition. So really fun, extended conversation. I don't know, this might be the longest one I've done. We, we went to, you know, two hours in, in conversation and it was really fun, really enjoyable. 
I should also say before you listen that I use some terminology in this discussion with Paul Vanderclay that's very, very familiar to his listeners because it's terminology that Paul frequently employs and explores, terminology from people like Blaise Pascal or Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson. So if you hear terms like unmapped territory or the spirit of geometry or the spirit of finesse, I don't give much explanation because these are terms that Paul's audience is going to be very familiar with. But if you're not, uh, you can follow up with questions at the end of this episode and reach out to me and ask, what what did that particular term mean? I'd be glad to talk about it with you. I'm sure Paul would even too, if you wanted to reach out to Paul Vanderclay. All right, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation that I got to have with Paul Vanderclay. Hi, this is Paul, and and I've got a special guest with me on today. Now, I, I'm not always sure I say your last name correctly. Paul yeah. Antleitner? Pretty close. Paul Ann Leitner. Ann Leitner. Ann Leitner. Yeah, so think of a lady's name. Ann, light in the middle, and ner at the end. Ann Leitner. Leitner. Yeah, it's an old German name uh, that... Um, my uncle did some digging in, and he's he's actually a bit of an agnostic. So, um, but he he just was really interested in our family of origin and what it means, and uh, evidently it w- means light giver. So, uh, I've Ooh, I'll claim nice. that last name and, <laughs> and try to try to live into that. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Now, Paul has his own podcast, and how often do your do your episodes come out? Weekly, and it's usually front side of the week. Um, like you, I'm in pastoral ministry full time, so I, I try to get that between a Monday and a Wednesday. And it's it's close to weekly. There are some times, you know, um, where it's not, but it, it, I I've pushed myself to do that because I know that even if I take a week off, I lose the opportunity for engagement with people, and then you know it just kind of falls out of there their purview. So yeah, it's weekly. And I think we have a lot of overlapping interests. Um, and yours is one of the few podcasts that I will listen or try to listen into regularly. Um, so I, you know, I think we both share this sort of background in what was once called Christian thought that that's not really a popular term anymore. In mm-hmm. fact, that's actually what I have my master's in. Although for most people, I just call it like philosophical theology because they go Christian thought. What's that? So, um, you know, similar shared interests and, you know, theology of culture, the intersection of the, uh, theology with philosophy. Um, you know, you talk about guys like James K. Smith and Charles Taylor, C.S. Lewis, Kierkegaard, you know, that's, that's, that's my wheelhouse too. And I love talking with people, that sort of stuff. So similar to you, it's also, I usually, the episodes vary between conversations I'll have with guests. And uh, I guess maybe more lectures. I don't know if you call what you do lecturing, but uh, you know the monologue stuff uh, as well. So I'll do some more extended series where I might kind of do a three or four part series on theology and science or theology and culture, and then try to just sprinkle in as many guests with the hope. Like I think you do a really good job of this, and I, I really loved the conversation you just recently had with Verveke where you guys are clearly coming from some different points of view. But one of the things I so appreciate and I think we need more of, and it's something I'm trying to do too, is have 
foster nuanced, charitable conversation with people. You know, as soon as we get our defenses up, as soon as we feel threatened, our amygdala hijacks our brain, shuts down that prefrontal cortex. And now we can't even exchange information. We can't exchange ideas at all. And there's, there's no room for, you know, cognitive spiritual development when that happens. So you're modeling it. And I, I really can't tolerate in this day and age where um, it seems like everything that gets clicks is, is outrage based. I just can't consume that stuff. It hurts my own soul. I see it leak out of me into how I interact with other people. And I go, what? Talking like this. So, you know, years ago, I shut off the cable news, the the talk (laughs) shows. And uh, so I find the stuff that you're doing, Paul, to be of a a balm to the soul and a uh, intellectual pushing too as well. So. Thank you. Thank you. We did a conversation a few months ago, and that was sort of for your podcast. And you interviewed me, and we talked about Jordan Peterson stuff and some of that. So I wanted to interview you and dig into a little bit more of your story and your background. That's, you know, that's one of the things that as, I mean, I sort of just bumbled into what I'm doing in many ways. But one of the things that I have most appreciated about what's come out of what I've been bumbling into has been the sharing of the stories and a sense of people knowing each other and then creating spaces where people can meet and connect and have some of that fruitful dialogue that's productive and and I think um, you're doing that we needed you're doing that. I mean, I, I've, I've hopped on a few times, even that Discord server that you opened up. And I'm just amazed at like these people. And you've even, I love the, whoever came up with the idea of having people put pins on a Google map for where they're located. And I look at that map and I go, this is, this is really incredible. It's really cool. And I know part of your story is, you know, a bit of the, the miraculous providence of God maybe on this whole thing as someone who's yeah. pastoring a smaller church and just, you know, you, you struggle to figure out how to get butts and seats at all. You know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden this, this thing's happening and you got people, you know, I think I logged in one time hopping on, hopping into, hopping into bed. And now I, reading all these wonderfully profitable discussions that are happening at you know 11 p.m among total strangers uh and it's it's so immensely encouraging because you know a little bit of my story and I'll, i can fill you in on maybe more of the details but at least one part of it i want to highlight now is when i was going through my master's in philosophical theology my goal was i'm going to go straight from this into my phd and I was talking to professors, advisors about that. And so many of these professors in theological academia were saying, don't do it, man. Like the whole system is collapsing this, this way of people you know, making six figures to teach people theology. And now they're turning so many seminaries, divinity schools are in financial disarray. People just aren't going to school for this, even at an undergrad level. There's so much pressure for people to do STEM stuff. And I, I love STEM. It's, it's wonderful. But so many people feel this pressure that, maybe rightfully so, that they should do something in undergrad that will help them get a job. You know, it's a novel mm-hmm. idea. But um, so he said, hey, 
many of these advisors I was talking to were saying just, you know, unless you absolutely have to, you feel like you would die without getting a PhD, I would not advise you to do that. But what they would, what several of them told me was, that doesn't mean the questions people have are going away just because they're not going to school for this anymore. In fact, the questions may be even more prevalent because we're losing funding to things like humanities departments. So people are now, as they're entering into their adult years, are like the questions are just being thrust upon them as they experience their own meaning crises. And so one of the inputs and advice that they had was, well, the questions are still out there. If we, if you can find a way just to bring the discussions and the education to people where they're already exploring, then you'll really have something of value. Now, it might not translate, as you know, it might not translate into like a job per se, but you're finding that there's people actually out there. We just have to bring it to them. And, you know, as I would sit down with young people, we talked about this in our first conversation, sit down with young men in particular, and I'd advise them, hey, pick up this like PhD level book. They're like, dude, I'm not doing that. Like I've got, I can't read at that level. You know, I I can't pick up the tome by Charles Taylor that you're referring to all the time, but I'll go onto YouTube and I'll watch a YouTube video or I'll, I'll go on for podcasts while I, I work, you know, I had some, excuse me, I had some guys just recently telling me and they do concrete work and they, they said, Hey, you know, we listen to your podcast while we're working on concrete. And I go, that's amazing. You know, that's so, that's so cool. So, um, I don't know how I got there, but all that to say, I I suppose that the, the questions as you're obviously finding out people, people are still wrestling with ultimate meaning making questions and they're just going to these different avenues to try to explore where to find those answers. I think we're seeing the I I I'm, I was frustrated this morning cuz I'm trying to post onto YouTube I've already got it on the 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 Podbean channel the audio channel a conversation I did yesterday with John Madeney. Now John was he sort of grew up parallel to me his father was the Arabic language minister of the Back to God Hour, which was the radio ministry of the Christian Reformed Church, most of its ministries overseas. And so he grew up in South Holland, Illinois. He went to Trinity College, not Calvin, um, went out to Utah because he was getting a, he was getting a degree in range studies, you know, studying the, you know, grazing land, which is, of course, of the American West is full of that. And eventually became a a family practice doctor in a small town in Montana and has lived, he's about my age, I think, and he's lived his life doing that. And, you know, talk to him about, so here's a guy who's, who's a medical doctor, obviously very well educated, uh, educated his children, educated himself so that he can, you know, build a house, do the plumbing and electrical and do all of those things. But, you know, every day on his way, on his ride to work on his bike, he listens to audiobooks, podcasts. He's followed Jordan Peterson. He's been following the Verbeke stuff. He's been he's been listening to me. And you know, I what I've discovered in and again, I, I bumbled into most of what has happened to my channel. You know, with just starting to talk to random people, people who found me. 
you know, finding all kinds of people like Julian, who's a Hutterite up in Manitoba <laughs> and spends his days welding dumpsters, but awesome. is, you know, the rest of his time reading Kierkegaard and, and philosophy and living in community. And Mary, who's down in Georgia, who was a Jehovah's Witnesses witness and and converted to Roman Catholicism. And, you know, when you talk to Mary, she's just, you know, brimming full of wisdom and philosophy. And, you know, I could just go on and on and on. And all of these people have, you know, there's Dr. Jim in Idaho, who's a cardiologist, and he comes on my channel and, you know, makes these observations that are just like, wow, I hadn't thought of that. And, and you very much get, you very much begin to see and experience that we are all smarter together than alone, and that even though there's been a lot of disruption and dislocation with a lot of the technology that's rushed at us, and and for many, you know, for many families and many individuals have suffered because the boundaries that should filter the power of that of those of those media have been broken down yet through this media, through YouTube, podcasts, the web, blogs, so on and so forth, people from various walks of life are engaging in some of the most vital questions in a highly intelligent way. And as, you know, John Verveke said to me in, in my conversation, you know, right now there's sort of a little corner of the internet that, you know, for whatever people think of Jordan Peterson, he sort of exploded it out there for us. And, and so now, you know, people are carving out little niches and communities where a lot of the old, a lot of the old barriers can hopefully be productively transcended and good conversations where we wrestle with, you know, very difficult issues and ideas can be productively engaged. And I know for, you know, for, for people say like myself, who comes from a conservative Christian tradition, you know, that was always, Oh yes. It was, it was always touchy and difficult. And so we're, we're still sort of feeling that out. I, I feel, I, I don't feel insecure in doing that given that my particular conservative tradition via Calvin college, you know, Thinkers like Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Waltersdorf, uh, Evan Runner. I mean, a whole bunch of uh, uh, Richard Mao. Many of these, many of the people in the generation before me, kind of mapped out a way to keep barriers but keep them semi-permeable, so we can work through ideas. So that's so. What's happening now? I find to be very encouraging. And the, you know, I really can't take credit for the Discord server. That was the product of a bunch of the guys in our local meetup who have found the meetup so, so important in their lives that they very much want to share it with others, but how to share it with others. And so we're sort of trying to figure that out as we go along. And the Discord server is not, the Discord server has become yet another tool by which we can we can bring people together and i too those of us who have put this thing together and you know have just been amazed at both the the openness 
the vulnerability, the transparency, but also the responsibility that everyone in the server has shown. I don't know if that scales. We'll have to see. But it's it's been, you know, I was listening to Rebel Wisdom. Uh, I was listening to Rebel Wisdom, and David was talking to another YouTuber in sort of in the IDW sphere. And David was saying, you know, I, I don't really, I don't really get the the same sense of excitement that I had when Jordan Peterson sort of first emerged. And I know what he's saying, but I've I've actually been continuing to have that same excitement as you know the meetups have sort of flourished and then now the discord server and it's been you know it's small it's not jordan peterson size which i think is really very good because that kind of whoosh that's that's really i i've been in churches that have exploded in size and every pastor imagines that that should happen but having lived through it eh, it's really hard on people so it's good to have things grow organically funny because kierkegaard argued that like truth is always a minority opinion and that once it (laughs) once it shifts to the majority you know the crowd is untruth for kierkegaard and i don't know maybe that was just Kierkegaard has a certain disposition to him that you have to wonder if he, you know, if he went through counseling or some, had some <laughs> spiritual director in his life, if he wouldn't be so cynical. But I, I think, uh, you know, this, this, this dialogue that people are engaging with, and it's, it is really interesting. I, they always say you don't go to the, the comment section on YouTube. And one of the things I found very early on is the, the algorithm very early on in doing my project had brought up one of your videos and I was like, Oh, I'm going to check out what this is. And then I didn't, I was like, well, I'm just going to look in the comments. I'm going to look in the comments to see how people respond to this. And I kind of did, you know, one of these things as I was looking and I was so amazed. And I clicked on a few other videos. I'm like, so unique. I mean, even just yesterday, I, I, I had tweeted out something in, in support of a, um, an Anabaptist pastor in Canada, a guy by the name of Bruxy Cavey, I just did an interview with and just saying how how charitable he is. And instantly I got a comment from somebody going, well, my, 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 like just speaking disparagingly of it. I'm like, I have never found that with, there are some people that I think have been listeners to your program that maybe in our first conversation, they they jumped over and listened to some of my stuff. And I found all of them, even though they were total strangers to be really gracious and it is a really unique thing i haven't i haven't seen that in other forums so uh you know i guess thank god for that right um but it's it is a benefit you know um theologian jw mcclendon threw out this idea in his uh he's got a systematic theology it's a three volume one and he comes from a little bit more of a a postmodern theology he's a bit on the anabaptist side and it's good but he threw out this idea that uh, struck me years ago when i first read it uh, you know, Christians frequently like to make claims in our denominations. We like to make claims that we are part of the one true path, that we could navigate this path all the way back to the apostles, and it's an unbroken line of succession, right? That's everybody's claim, that they think that they're getting they're getting that. And maybe some, some traditions have a little bit easier path than others. I, I don't know. But he brought up this idea that maybe that's not actually what... Um, Christ had intended in John 17 in his high priestly prayer that we would become one, even as he and the father are one, that instead what we were, what Christ had hoped would that 
each of us from our different convictional locations, from our ethnic backgrounds, from these like cultural lenses that do color our picture of reality, that what would happen is we would gather together and we would share these positions. And I, I, I've compared it to maybe, you know, you climb up a, a hill and you look out over a valley, but you notice there's other hills around. You know, what you want to do to get a good picture of what's really going on in that valley is you want to compare what you've seen from your particular vantage point, confessing that it's limited with other people around that that valley. And as long as people have an openness, you know, and maybe just everybody that's attracted to your channel scores really high in openness, <laughs> you know, that could be, yeah. um, you know, and that's, that's great because I think you exude that as well. So that's probably what you attract. As long as people are high in openness, uh, this exchange of ideas can can remain profitable because we all confess. Like I confess as a Christian, you know, I am limited in my ability to see. And on top of that, you know, I was born into a, this world with a sinful predisposition that pushes me in the direction of trying to see things my way, of trying to have my biases confirmed. And so, you know, I guess part of the path of discipleship. Speaking like as pastors is to process of repentance of metanoia is to open ourselves up to the possibility of seeing things a new way, which I didn't always have either. And I guess to get to a little bit of my story, if you if people wanted to hear it at all, I'm I'm a second generation evangelical, so I'm you know a lot in a lot of ways people would point to my life as a child of the 80s and 90s, growing up Mm -hmm. in evangelicalism as like the typical evangelical experience. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the Detroit area in Michigan and my parents met in college. Both of them, my father came from maybe a a nominal Catholic, probably more, I would just say like generally theistic family, but uh, religion did not play a high priority in their life. My mom, on the other hand, came from a pretty rigid Catholic background. She attended Catholic school. And in the 70s, as the the charismatic renewal was happening in the 1970s, um, my mom and dad uh, both had their born-again experience in, in their college years. And the way that they came into that sort of like born-again experience was in somewhat divergent ways. So for my dad... My dad had heard, uh, you know, it was kind of some, what you might call, like, this is Christianese, so I have to apologize to those listeners that don't come from this, uh, like, relational evangelism. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, a stud linebacker at Wayne State University, actually set their all-time tackle record as a five foot 11 190-pound wow. middle linebacker. <laughs> um, you know, he was a, probably a bad dude and had some stories that he hasn't even shared with me yet. And uh, it was guys in like fellowship of Christian athletes that were just kind of reaching out to him, inviting him to stuff. He heard Bill McCartney speak, who was, you know, the one time uh, it was on staff at the University of Michigan, also kind of had that famous Hail Mary play at the University of Colorado, and then went on to do a bunch of stuff with Promise Keepers, which again, if you're in the evangelical world, you know what that is. If you don't, you know... (laughs) Uh, I don't know how to explain it. It was it was a men's it was a men's. Well, you know, I think there are actually some there's some connection between this Jordan Peterson. There is thing actually. I was going to say that promise keepers. <laughs> there is. You know, was I was going to say the precursor to Jordan right. Peterson was in the '90s. This reclamation of what 
you know, hopefully at least in their mind, right? Like proper masculinity looked like as a follower of Jesus. And so I went as a kid to the Silverdome in Pontiac, Michigan with 75,000 men and boys to go to a Promise Keepers event with my dad. I don't remember much of it other than one of the things that really stood out to me was the sound of 75,000 men singing in worship. And that left an imprint on me as well as some guys on the floor playing hacky sack throughout most of the sessions too. That as a kid, I don't know, it was probably nine or 10. I was like, wow, that's so cool. I don't think I listened to any of the speaking, but the singing left an imprint on me. So that was my dad's background. And then, you know, for him, it was more of the life of the mind. He needed to have some serious questions answered. So like, you know, very early on as he was kind of going through his conversion process, he read, you know, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, you know, some of those classic apologetic books. And that really helped win him over. My mom, on the other hand, like she really couldn't have cared less about that stuff. You know, she she was really after the mystical experience. Um, she lived in this, what she would describe, and this isn't the case for all Catholics, but she lived in a very rigid form of Catholicism that from her impression was about following rules, following a list of rules to earn salvation. And again, I know that's not Catholicism proper, uh, but she, in her Catholic school experience, you know, if she wasn't sitting with her hands folded at her desk, a nun would come by and slap her hand with a ruler. So for her, she went through this journey of trying to, you know, maybe to borrow some of the terminology you've been using. And I don't, maybe I'm misusing this because I I need to refresh my memory and do some more reading on Pascal. But for her, it was more of a spirit of finesse. And she needed to explore the reality of God on an intuitive, mystical, and supernatural level. And so the charismatic renewal of the 70s really resonated with her. She would go to these meetings and, and see the miraculous, see deaf ears open and um, you know, people getting out of wheelchairs, stuff that for many evangelicals and probably even in your tradition, they don't have much of a grid for. That's not been a normal feature of church life. So for her, it was, I would, I would say it was more of the, the spirit of finesse. Maybe my dad was a little bit more of the spirit of geometry and I'm a product of that. <laughs> you know? So I grew up in a very charismatic um, tradition uh, and spent Did you go actually, to mass then growing up? No, 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 no. We didn't. Actually, I'm sorry. So to, to clarify, they became full-on born-again evangelicals okay. in their college years, got married, okay. uh, became uh, uh, involved with a, a non-denominational church. The founding pastors of this church had grown up like fundamentalist Southern Baptist, got, as again, as we would we were calling it at the time, and it, it sounds dismissive of other traditions, probably because it was. They got filled with the Spirit, yep, yep, as if yep. the other other Christians didn't. They yep. had the full gospel, you yep, know, as opposed yep. to whatever percent other traditions had. They became full gospel, filled with the Spirit, <clears throat> and so spirit they baptism. Yep, Spirit baptism, speaking in tongues. But <clears throat> excuse me. There was this unique thing going on because the the founding pastors came from this fundamentalist Southern Baptist, no dancing, no card playing, very, very legalistic. But now they had that with a bunch of charismatic flair to it. And so I grew up in that church and that church actually had a K through 12 Christian school, which is 
a pretty new feature, you know, that, that was a result of kind of the, the culture war stuff that was happening in the late seventies, you get into the early eighties. Um, and the kind of evangelical right is starting to develop, you know, so people were taking this, uh, Christ against culture to use HR Niebuhr's language, Christ against culture approach. And we're going to make our own separate schools with its own separate way of doing science with its own separate language. And, and I'm appreciative in some regard for the reasons why they did that. Um, when you see such massive cultural changes that happened as a result of like the sexual revolution and just changing values, I understand why they did that. And uh, in many ways, I'm thankful for my Christian school experience. But it was, if you can imagine, you know, the most fundamentalist Southern Baptist, you know, but also mix in like, Oral Roberts and Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> wow. Um, and I joke and my parents find they listen to much of the stuff that I do and they're they're fine with the way I retell this. But part of my like daily devotionals as a kid by the time I was in the 90s was to read Kenneth Copeland's daily devotional. If you don't know who Kenneth Copeland is, he is, you know, prosperity gospel yeah. poster boy number one, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know yeah, he's he's got a jet. He does. He has a jet. So another thing that might be weird to people, what was normal to me, I probably went to like four or five Benny Hinn crusades as a kid. Wow. Um, so that was the yeah, world yeah, I inhabited. Yeah. Um, and very early on though, I began, began to realize that one of the primary sacraments in the charismatic church, we never used that language, right? was music. One of the unique features of our stream is the emphasis on music as a means of grace. Yep. Nobody says it like that, but what they will say is the presence of God was in worship. What are they saying? When they, what do they mean when they say that? It, it, you know, in hindsight, I look back and I go, well, in a lot of ways, it's similar to what maybe Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, how they treat the Eucharist, Right. God is really, really here. And in fact, one story from my childhood as a freshman in high school at my K through 12 Christian school, we did chapel every week and it was pretty blase. You know, we had a full on revival hit our, our school. It was not long after some of the stuff that was happening, let's say in like Toronto, um, for people yeah. that maybe have any familiarity, Toronto blessing. the Toronto blessing, the Brownsville revival down in Florida. These were kind of the worlds we were occupying and something like that hit my Christian school where our normal chapel got hijacked and the worship didn't stop. And, and I, I still look back on it as one of the most formative experiences in my life because that day, again, though we were charismatic, charismatics have their own liturgy just like everybody else. And you can learn to just go through the motions of that liturgy yeah. without any sort of meaningful connection to how this applies to your life. And that day in chapel, I just felt like overwhelmed all of a sudden. I, I and this isn't a spirit of geometry thing that's happening in me. No. You know, this is on the intuitive level. I'm overwhelmed with a sense of transcendence. I'm crying. I don't know why I'm crying. I'm going over and repenting to teachers that I've cheated on their tests for. I don't know why nobody told me to do this. And I'm looking around, and this is happening all over the room. And the worship music didn't stop that day. Thankfully, like the administrators had the wherewithal. They canceled class. And we literally, from morning through the rest of the day, was just singing and praying for each other. And then, you know, I'm 13 years old or so at the time. 
And a bunch of us are like, man, this is awesome. But we know our parents have got to pick us up at the end of the day here. Do we have to stop? And they were like, well, let's talk to them and see if we can come back tonight and do this again. And so we did. And then we did it the Your night after that. parents are going to say no. The parents I know. Are- <laughs> I know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, of course, they don't say no. And so we're doing this nightly. And eventually, the parents start coming and showing up. And before we know it, we had gone for several months, as many people as we could fit into our sanctuary that was also a gym, which was also the place we ate lunch, which we called the Sanctanasium. <laughs> Not even joking. The Sanctanasium <laughs> was its name. And we had, you know, we had 400 people nightly and, and like genuine repentance, you know, was happening. People were changing their lives and all sorts of stuff, but it all revolved around musical expression. Musical expression of worship was our sacrament. And that left a huge impression on me because when I got into my college years uh, and I felt a call to ministry, well, the thing that made the most sense to me was well, music, like this is the thing that helps me commune with God. I've seen how it's helped other people commune with God. And I'm in this charismatic space where music is the main course. And in many cases, the preaching is like the side dish or the dessert, if you even get to it, which is, I mean, honestly, like, I know this is so hard for some people to wrap their mind around. And it is even in the current church I'm at, which is just a, an old free church. Um, imagine a pastor getting up when he should be getting ready to preach and he grabs the microphone and goes, well, we're just not going to stop worshiping this morning. And he goes and sits back down and we do that for two hours. Really, really hard for people that haven't grown up in that to understand what that's like. So as I'm thinking about what does it look like to bless the world? What does it look like to follow Jesus, to help people? That's the thing that I feel called to do. So by 19, I was already doing a pastoral internship at my non-denominational church. The pastors had a crazy idea. Well, let's send this 19-year-old kid out to plant a church, um, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> a terrible idea. I'm thankful for it. Say it all over again. <laughs> it is. It is. In an area that was like 45 minutes away, we didn't know anybody. And it was, again, the pastor using the spirit of finesse, intuiting, going, I just feel like the Lord is calling us to go there, which is just normal in charismatic culture. It's just normal. It's People talk about the Lord spoke to me, the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord said this, and you just throw that around and like nobody ever questions it. Uh, and I know some people that come out of that are, are really, really hurt by those experiences. I'm not hurt. I, I've be able, been able to come full circle and appreciate some of what was going on there. So they sent me out to plant a church. The church failed. <laughs> you know, there was you know, all sorts of scandals that happened at, at our home church, sadly. And, um, but anyways, as I get in my early... One of the things I yeah. love about the charismatics is just that. that and, and some people look at that like a bug. It's like, well, God called us to do this. And so a, 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 a rational, logical Calvinist looks at that and says, yeah, but that failed. And they're like, oh, but God's calling us to do this over here. And it's like, wait, <laughs> the, wait, The goalposts just move. That's right. But, <laughs> but it's like, well, this is what we're doing. And I know I have a friend who his, his father, his, his stepfather is so this way. And it actually, it just, it just drives him crazy. And I understand why it drives him crazy, but part of me just watches it and thinks, gosh, 
part of me wants to be more like that, you know, because, yeah. you know, I do the postmortem and why didn't God show up? Totally. It's like, on to the next thing. <laughs> well, you know, again, at the church, church, current church where I'm at, which is, again, an old free church, uh, it's, it's the oldest in the city of Minneapolis, 140-year-old congregation. I mean, they didn't stop speaking Swedish until like 1930 or 40 as a Swedish only. Um, I One of the reasons I think they brought me in was because of my charismatic background and them going, we want some of that here. We don't know how, but we see that you have these experiences. So anyways, as I got into early years of ministry, it was all revolving around this idea of worship music as a means of communion with God. And so very early on, I got involved in a parachurch ministry for two years, traveling around the country, helping churches establish what we called houses of prayer. And the goal of these, there was this movement that that really began in the late 90s. Um, but we would always say it goes back all the way to Ziesendorf, you know, who had a really long, we'd always say with some evangelical license that he had a hundred year long prayer meeting that launched the largest missions movement in the history of the church, which was which was somewhat true. What we didn't realize is that it wasn't like nonstop for a hundred years, but there were places like the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. In 1999, they started a prayer meeting and it hasn't stopped yet, which I know many of your listeners probably aren't familiar with. They take two hour shifts around the clock to have worship music and prayer happening. And you can just go in that room and you could just sit there for as long as you want, almost like a monastic sort of retreat. Were they so, connected with the Kansas City Prophets as well? Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Latter Rain movement, yep, yeah. definitely. So I was heavily involved in those circles, traveling around the country uh, with other people in their early 20s, telling pastors that are in their 50s, what you need to do to fix your church is to get your church together with a bunch of other churches and to just pray and worship around the clock. So we would start, I'd go into a city, and we'd connect with the churches there that were open to doing this. And we go, all right, we're going to go for 24 hours. So let's get five, six churches around the city together and have your worship team, your intercessory team, which is, again, a unique feature of charismatic life oftentimes, and your pastors and commit to a two-hour block of time to come in and pray for the city, seek the heart of God, all of this stuff. Because what we really believed, so this is what we were, I was Pretty convinced of very early on that this was, and this was part of the latter rain movement that, um, you know, Bob Jones, Mike Bickle, these are some of the people yep. involved yep. in those streams was that before Christ could return, yep. there needed to be the restoration of the tabernacle of David, right? Now, what we didn't get, and still I, many people don't, was that you know, the early church understood that prophecy is already being fulfilled at Pentecost. We were seeing it as much more of a literal setting up of Davidic style worship in cities across the world. And when we would do that, um, Christ would return. So you often hear about in Revelation, it talks about the harp and the bowl, the bowls of incense, which is the prayer of the saints. And Revelation has this picture of this bowl being filled up with incense and when that gets filled up, it's like, well, now the seals can be unlocked and we can go, you know, we needed this to happen before Christ could return. That was kind of our way of understanding. So I'm saying deep in charismatic culture. And Paul, I have seen wild stuff. 
even in the midst of that, like I was already like dabbling with Kierkegaard, A.W. Tozer, you know, um, those were some people that played big influences on me. You know, in a lot of ways, I've shared this before, like Greg Boyd is a gateway drug for charismatics into theology because we wow. have to have a framework for why our prayers make a difference. We have to have a framework for truly believing that God doesn't want this person sick. So Greg's open theism sort of provided that kind of framework for petitionary prayer to make sense. So I'm getting a little bit more into theology. Simultaneously, I'm already teaching Bible classes at a Christian high school, going through this stuff, and my I'm shifting, like uh, I'm going through a theological evolution here. I'm going through a process of a little bit of deconstruction while I'm in the middle of this. So I was never one that was like fully on board with the entirety of charismatic culture. I always had a little bit of maybe my dad going, I need evidence, right? Like I need a little bit of spirit of geometry here. But I tell you what, Paul, I've seen some wild things. I mean, I have seen, I was in Ontario, Windsor, Ontario. Somebody said, hey, can you come out and do worship? We're doing this street thing for the homeless. And we're going to pray for people there that can't afford insurance. We're going to just see if God heals them. And I would just do my, my silly four chord worship songs. And they're like, all right, we're going to start praying for these really poor, poor people in Windsor, which is very similar in some pockets to Detroit. And I saw deaf people, like their ears open. I've seen wild things that I still don't know what to do that I am usually tempted to say are like demonic counterfeit. I remember being at a meeting one time, I'm doing worship, the guest speaker that's coming in is preaching, he's praying for people at the end. We go out to Denny's after and the guy's covered in gold dust. And he had no time, like I walked with him the whole way. And there was this weird thing happening in charismatic circles with like feathers emerging in meetings and actual jewels. I've got a friend of mine who doesn't even like really believe in all this stuff, who keeps a bag of these jewels, these like I your listeners are going to be so weird. Say it, man. You got to say this. You know, stuff even because- my listeners, I haven't <laughs> talked about this stuff in my podcast at all. He tried- I love it. I love it. <laughs> Keep going. I got grab my water bottle. I'll yeah, still go listen. for it. <laughs> he he keeps a he keeps a bag of these like I still don't know what we would call them. These like gemstones that seem like they've just miraculously emerged in these meetings out of nowhere. I have a friend. I'm not. I I could send people pictures of this if I still have it on my phone somewhere. And he was a guitar player, and all of the frets on his guitar turned to gold. He took it to his luthier one day. He didn't even realize it. And he, the luthier, who wasn't even like a believer, was like, "Dude, what the f did you do to your guitar?" <laughs> He's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Your frets, your frets on your guitar are all gold." He's like, "Man, I don't know. We just had some awesome time of worship the other night." <laughs> so. But, I, but this is yes. to me because you know, so I I obviously have my fingers in all sorts of pies now yeah, yeah, relationships yeah. with all sorts of persons. And I, I f- know full well that many of the people listening to this will just yell, you know, will just yell bullshit. Yeah, the, go for it. These things don't so, happen. But yeah. the thing is, places like you and I have been, we're not making this stuff up. No, I don't want to make it up. I'd rather not be telling you this right now. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing because I, I like to pride myself now as, you know, being someone who has a, you know, good good sense of theological awareness and uh, as a teacher and, uh, you know, and in my context, I'd never talk about this on a Sunday morning, you know, 
get run out of the church. But here I am putting it on the internet for everybody to hear. Anyways, um, so that I was in deep in charismania, you know, deep in it. And, but I started experiencing so much cognitive dissonance because Again, and I, somebody can correct me, and maybe you can, that has a better grasp of Pascal than I. I have not really done much with Pascal, but as you've talked about this sort of spirit of finesse, charismatic culture is all about finesse. You know, it's about the intuitive side, not so much the cognitive side. And I've always joked, you know, I heard always that seminaries were cemeteries. And we heard this framework for, you know what, the disciples, you know who was the educated people? The Pharisees. You know who was uneducated? The disciples that actually followed Jesus. And there's some truth there, right? That's part of like the rich history of the Pentecostal tradition is that it actually takes what the reformers were saying and it takes it seriously, the priesthood of all believers. They're like, dude, you don't need to go to seminary. You had a crazy vision where God took you into the throne room. Oh, that's good enough for us. We'll put you on the poster for the next conference. (laughs) And, And like, that's your verification. You are verified not by your education in those circles, but by your intuitive, experiential, mystical experiences. The problem, and by your accomplishments too, though, sometimes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. That's definitely the case. You know, if you gathered a group of people together, if you established, you know, more of the seeker language, a prevailing church, you know, yes. then, you know, so, so there's, so that's, that's some, that's important. Oh, that's an important yeah. Piece. Certainly, certainly is, but it's just different, you know, in, in, yep. in, in the denominations that we are part of right now, you know, that they're looking for what sort of formal education and experiences that you've had, not tell us about the wildest vision you had. And it, we laugh about it, but that is actually the criteria yeah. for it. And um, so I was in that world, but what I found was this sort of anti-life of the mind was yeah. so damaging to so many people too, yeah. because this they're like, we're only going to use this un- to, God is always unmapped territory, right? We can, to map him out seems like it's idolatry or to approach the scriptures with using like historical grammatical exegesis. No, what you do is you get around in a circle. And I was, I was telling uh, someone else about this. You'd get around in the circle with your Bible and you'd go, all right, let's just keep reading until we feel something jump off the page and let's talk about what it means. Yep. Yep. So, yep. <laughs> in a lot of ways, we talked about this before. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I know people were actually, after our first conversation, reached out to me, maybe upset with me that really like Peterson and really like his biblical series. But I know we talked about this before. That's my least favorite part of Peterson's stuff is his <laughs> biblical series because I hear him and I go, this is what we did as charismatics. We haven't consulted a commentary. We haven't consulted a biblical scholar and we're doing like psychological personal analyses of what these things mean to us. I know that's not totally fair. To, to Peterson's work. And, and I think it's helpful to, to remember that this, even though in the anti-intellectualism within this tradition, that's always, and I think both sides participate in it, that's always imagined as a binary thing. You know, you can, I remember when Jonathan Peugeot made a comment, I think he made it on Twitter, something of the, something of the fact like the last person you're going to find anything worthwhile about the Bible from is a biblical scholar. And so I, I kind of, I kind of pushed back on that because it, 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 this isn't a binary thing because of course, Peugeot is, you know, he, he, you know, so he, he knows the evangelical charismatic movement too, but his 
his angle out of it is obviously the symbolic world and the work of himself and his brother. And, and so it's not binary. It's not use your head or use your heart. These are not binaries here. And there are many angles into this. And there's a reason I have a wall full and, you know, thousands of dollars invested in biblical commentaries, not because they're useless or not because they're, you know, all that there is, but it's helpful. It is. It's inherited, inherited wisdom. Yep. And to reject that inherited wisdom means, you know, my undergrad was in history. So part of the, the, the dilemma I was coming up against is it seemed like many times charismatics had no sense of history at all. You know, it's like we would talk about the good old days of the early church, you know, the Book of Acts church. That was our model. Um, but everything between Acts and like Azusa Street you know, it was like a failure, you know, and I'm, I'm going, well, I'm looking at some of the things that we're doing and I'm looking at some of the ways that people have been actually really, really hurt because they felt like they had to check their minds at the door. We had some friends that were involved in the community and and the, boy, it's so heartbreaking because they were such sincere people, but in that community, they got so into like this dispensationalist end time stuff and listening to people, various prophets, you know, prophetic words about what was going to happen to Israel, you know, they started. They felt like they had to start stockpiling to to um, to have a, resources in their house so that they could one day possibly, you know, host Jewish people that are going to be, you know, under another Holocaust. And they were living constantly in anxiety and boy, like so much of that you go, all right, this isn't totally unmapped territory here. You know, there's been people in our past that have wrestled with the scriptures and, you know, revelation isn't that freaky. In fact, a lot of it makes sense in a first century context. If you read it with the assumption, you know, so anyways, that was part of my journey. And I'd already been teaching for years. I was into theology, but I was really brushing up against, here's the thing I was realizing was that there... I, I talk quite a bit about this. I just did uh, like a month ago, a series on Christ and culture. And we talked a little bit about this framework for how um, within our, you know, our larger culture, but also within the smaller, you know, cultures that we inhabit in our communities, this total way of life for a people group or community, how spirit, that is, you know, the meta stories we believe, the supreme values. You've talked about this quite a bit. And one of the things I, I, I did diss Jordan Peterson, but I, I've really, I, I listen to him quite frequently. I just have nuanced critiques. And one of the things I think Peterson gets spot on, you brought this up quite a bit with the interviews with Sam Harris, was this, is this idea that let's just start talking about God and just to assume that Sam Harris doesn't believe in God is false because what Peterson gets at is that we all, you know, he says, I live as if God exists, but my thing, and this is influenced by guys like Charles Taylor, James K.A. Smith, we all live as if a God exists because God is that which we give the totality of our lives to. And that God is the thing that informs our values and our values are expressed in these areas of our life. So there's a liberation theologian, Dwight Hopkins, and I actually, you were talking in one episode and and I had already been familiar with Dwight Hopkins work and had used it already 
Dwight Hopkins talked about in culture that you, we have these like three domains to the totality of our lives. We have spirit and spirit again is like the domain of our ethos, the transcendent ideas, the invisible like meta stories we believe, these supreme values. And then we also have in, in our culture, our total way of life, we also have the aesthetic and the aesthetic is the creative expression of spirit. So how does spirit, which is invisible, how do values which are invisible become visible? Well, they take on a particular aesthetic. It's the, the creative expression of spirit manifest in arts, stories that we actually write and tell or capture in film. It's, it's captured in works of beauty. And the thing that I started to realize is you've talked a bit about this and, and listening to Jordan Peterson was, um, you know, the aesthetic is actually a portal. It's a portal to spirit. It's both a way that we, I've, I've maybe described it as, I don't know if I've actually talked about this in a podcast, but with other people is, you know, it's, it's like Jacob's ladder, story of Jacob's ladder in the scriptures, right? Jacob's ladder, when Jacob falls asleep, he has, he sees these angels both ascending, meaning, you know, going up and descending, coming down. So this domain of spirit, which is totally invisible, right? Like our values are invisible. To say you want something to be good in your life, well, that goodness or the desire for beauty is an invisible value, but it is made visible in our lives. So the aesthetic is like this portal, right? It's like a doorway. It's like Jacob's ladder. The ideas expressed out in the, the works of beauty that we make. But it's also a way when other people see it, they see through that and then they get to see through that doorway into the realm of spirit. So what I was be able to realize, I should probably bring up the third category for Hopkins and that's Hopkins talks about culture as labor. So spirit, I'll do this in the camera so people can see spirit is at the top of the hierarchy, right? And then you have, well, maybe I'll put it over here in reverse aesthetic. Then you have labor at the bottom of this pyramid. And labor is just the human work of adapting or repurposing the natural world that we find ourselves in for individual or community benefit. So it's the work that we do. It also, that domain also encompasses things like politics, which is the, you know, part of that is the human exchange of the fruits of our work and the sorts of agreements that we make between each other about how we should treat each other, that's, that's all labor. And so labor and aesthetic are always subordinate to spirit, hmm. which is why like the biblical prophets, this is so fascinating. You read the Old Testament prophets and you read Amos or Jeremiah or even um, Isaiah 1. I always talk about Isaiah 1 because Isaiah 1 is so fascinating because you've got this entire like liturgical system of worship set up under Moses, right? Requires sacrifices. It's an aesthetic, right? It's a liturgy, but it's also a room filled with these things like the, you know, cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. You can't make an image of God, right? And this is the key thing because the true God is beyond creation. He is transcendent. So you can't make an image of him, but what you can do is you can put cherubim yes, yes. on it. Isn't that fascinating? Right? You can put these other things, these aesthetic expressions that are supposed to, right? Mimic. There are images. There are images. Not of God, because the ultimate 
the problem with idolatry, and this is Romans 1, right, is that we settle for the created thing above the creator. And what that ultimately is, is just dysfunctional. It's in a dysfunctional allegiance of our worship. And so that dysfunction, this is like Christian theology. What flows out of that dysfunction is death because we remove ourselves. We move ourselves away from the transcendent source. So, I mean, this is like Athanasius, right? Athanasius on the incarnation, God has to step into the story, but what is he doing? He's stopping human trajectory towards death, right? Um, it's the for Augustine, for Gregory of Nyssa, evil is the privation of good, right? It's not its own category. It's moving away. I think it was it was either Augustine or Gregory of Nyssa that said, you know, like Satan's first sin was just closing his eyes to the good, you know? So back to Jer- Isaiah 1, Isaiah's like, hey, on, the, on behalf of God, your sacrifices, you know the things God told you to do? They're worthless to me. I don't need the blood of bulls and rams. What I need is for you guys to treat the poor and the oppressed the right way. Why is that? It's because what was made, being made manifest in their labor was the actual expression of the God that they worshiped. And what were they worshiping? They're worshiping idols. So there's this deep connection between that injustice and them, the people of Israel going outside. Solomon let this happen, right? King Solomon let the institution of high places happen. And what was those high places? Those were places of like child sacrifice. So we know outside of the walls of Jerusalem in the place called the Valley of Hinnom, which for those, maybe they've grown up in the church, maybe they know some of this stuff, but even I didn't until I got older. The Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna. So when we get into the New Testament, Valley of Hinnom is the location where people sacrificed their children on the altars of Molech outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They literally put them on this bronze statue that had its hands, I'll put it out like this, you know, had its hands shaped like that. And then they would put their children in the hands of Moloch. They were willing to kill their children for the values of Molech. And so they're burning their kids out there. And then what happens? The warning comes to Israel and Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar's coming to town, and guess what's going to happen? Your dead bodies are going to get stacked in the Valley of Hinnom. Like that's the judgment. And then when Jesus in the New Testament talks about hell, all save for two places. You know, for example, one of the places where he doesn't use this word is in the story of Lazarus right. and the rich man, and that's right. actually Hades. Yep. But all the pretty much every other case, when Jesus talks about hell in the Gospels, when you see that in English, it's the word Gehenna. And what's yep. Gehenna? It's just the Greek transliteration of the Valley of Hinnom. So judgment's coming, and this is what's going to happen: is that as you worship these wrong ideas, so these values get made manifest in your life as fruits of death, destruction, killing your children, oppressing the poor. And what that's going to lead to is death. So essentially what they go, the prophets are saying is like, your aesthetic, your liturgy doesn't match your labor. Your labor is the actual expression and your aesthetic together are the actual expression of the God that you worship. And I can say, once we start talking and framing the discussion around that, like I'm so thankful you're doing, uh, even I'm so thankful Jordan Peterson is helping people reframe this notion of God from, you know, this 
silly new atheist claim. I don't, you know, don't worship some God in the sky. It's like, no, that's never been what the Christian God is. Never even been for Jews or Muslims. What, what God is, it's like just somehow naming that, like Anselm said, that, that God was that which we could think no higher than. We are always able to see in people's lives the God that they worship, that which they can think no higher than gives them their values. The values are expressed in our aesthetic and our labor. So, well, how, how do we get there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that, that's usually how these conversations go, yeah. right, Paul? <laughs> oh, Karis. Well, so let's get back to your story. Although I yeah. do want to mention, I do want to mention something because you know I've I've certainly and a, a part of my audience knows my critique of what I call woke religion or progressive liberationism. But part of what I am most annoyed, what what most most annoys me by that movement is in fact that the the biblical long-standing tradition of what was always known as social justice that was never a yeah. bad word in my vocabulary actually becomes an idol because then suddenly oh it's the it's it's your anti-oppression that is now your idol it's like no wait a minute the anti-oppression the reason you're against oppression is because of all of this and it's because of God. So it's one integrated thing. It's not, well, now we can get rid of, now we can get rid of God because we have anti-oppression. And it's like, no, that the, the reason for anti-oppression is that these are image bearers of God. And it does not deny that oppression is real exactly. or exists, or even that it is too great for us. This is a foe greater than what we can manage, like so many other things in this world and in our lives. But that's and so that has to be properly placed. Otherwise, when it gets to the top of the hierarchy, it does become an idol, and then you have all of the death around it that we see, but in potential in this movement. And it's it it's exactly what you laid out is you know I think I think very well, very nicely articulating the movement that that itself your anti-oppression then becomes death. The spirit, yeah, the spirit, the domain of spirit always directs our sense of what, how things ought to be, right? So even you could take like the woke religions, um, where are they getting their sense of ought from? The sense of ought in many ways, and I think like guys like Charles Taylor, James K. Smith can highlight this stuff uh, much better than I, but that we are I got even Nietzsche, Nietzsche saw it that we are still, though God is dead in many ways in Western civilization, like the news hasn't reached the ears of common people, you know, so we are still deriving certain senses of our ought from this Christian story, you know, like why I am really sympathetic for why there are people that really, really passionately care about marginalized people and the oppressed. They should right? Where does that come from though? Where does that sense of ought come from? And then what is the telos? What's, you know, so actually, like, I think a lot of the stuff that we see is these sort of substitute secular religions in a secular age are, have this eschatological drive. And what I mean by that is they have a sense that we are heading towards somewhere. Now the Christian story 
has said, we are heading towards the restoration of all things, new heavens, new earth. They still want to head towards maybe a utopian picture of that, but they want to deny where ultimately that picture is going to come from, how it's going to actually, what are the guidelines for what for what restoration looks like? What is a functional picture of reality? And I, you know, I simultaneously have to confess, though I have these convictions, part of my Christian conviction, as we already talked about, is yeah, I've got a limited perspective on this. So I want to dialogue with other people. But what I would say, I feel like this is rationally makes sense. And it's also on an intuitive level makes sense that we have to keep pushing, pushing beyond the created thing, pushing beyond the created thing, keep going to the to all, you know ultimate reality. What is that thing which I can think no higher of, but is actually the thing that should be at the top of our, we might say like our, our hierarchy of values. So we got to keep pushing and keep pushing towards that. So I think there are concerns when we go, all right, people feel like they have this strong ethical compass. They think that progress is moving in any direction as long as it's away from the past. And I go, I just want to know what is the telos here? What's the end game? And I can kind of say it as a Christian. Like I have this vision that I have accepted because yes, by faith, this is a process. But the vision that I have is like a people of every tribe and tongue, you know? Uh, so I, I do have value for those that are being oppressed because I see this picture in new creation of them, the kings of all the nations bringing their gifts. And I see the light of Christ illuminating the entirety of the world. So I can confess, honestly, like that's the direction I'm moving towards. And if you disagree, that's fine. Uh, I'd like to learn from you. Would you like to learn from me? But there is a, there's a fundamentalist attitude in some of the substitute secular religions that I go, oh, I've smelled this before. (laughs) (laughs) I smelled this. It's like, oh, I know this. Yeah, I've been this. I've been this. But at least, you know, I I just want to be able to say, like, I confess that I have these convictions, but I'm just, I want to show my cards on them. Do you want to show your cards? And we can kind of talk about where these convictions come from. So so anyway, back to charismania. And then, then you're teaching high school. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was teaching high school. Like most of my adult life, I've been in bivocational ministry where I was teaching high school, like theology, biblical studies courses, um, really fruitful years of doing that, really in, enjoyed that. But simultaneously, have also been on staff at churches. And most of that has looked like 20 hours a week of being at a church on staff as their worship pastor, or, or, you know, and then the other... 40 hours a week being uh, in a full-time teaching role. So, you know, even as I've gone through like my own theological journey, and then I went through my seminary process, I still hold these. And this is part of, I think you've got an ultimate project. Like there's a problem you're sorting out in your own mind, right? You're, you're, You're doing this and this is why you're having conversations with people. And I'm doing the same thing. Yes, it's to help people, but I'm also like sorting through. I'm searching as well. And so part of this project for me has been just how do I make the how do I make the the right brain, left brain work together? How do we have transcendence and imminence? How do we see God in both? 
God number one, God number two, geometry, finesse. Um, and like, how do we do that in a healthy way? Because I've seen both imbalances. I've seen imbalances where there are people that just go, there are certain Christian traditions, right? That just go, you know, essentially what they're doing is following a rationalism, but a rationalism where they're deriving everything from their particular reading of a really old book. But God can't presently speak in any sort of intuitive way to them because that would be somehow like a challenge to the authority of that book. And that's one of the things like I think healthy charismatics can go, hang on, hang on. Like we do submit ourselves to an authority that that is beyond us. We don't just trust our gut on stuff. And yet, like how did these scriptures come to be? If we actually believe in something like the inspiration of scripture, we have to confess that God has these people have sort of finessed their way <laughs> into telling the story of God. So that has to be an option on the table. So I still hold to that, right? Um, I still hold to that. I'm just, I'm working through this process. I think I even shared with you a while back, like even going through this process of being charismatic, who's an evangelical, the evangelical side is we did communion once a month, Right. We did communion once a month, and it was just the symbolic thing that, honestly, as a kid, I went, I don't know why we're doing this, but it also seems important enough that if I don't come, we'd hear this verse about if we didn't come with you know, clean hands, that we might be heaping God's judgment on ourselves. I'm like, wow, maybe we shouldn't just do this at all. Can we just like <laughs> not do it once a month and not, not worry about that? I'd be so freaked out. Like, I don't know what this is. I know it's symbolic. Yeah. Hear this verse that we could be heaping judgment on ourselves if we do it in yeah. an un- yeah. unright yeah. manner. Yeah. So I went through this process like probably 2010, 2011 of maybe as going through a sense of like, I don't understand the Eucharist mm. at all. I don't understand why this is valuable. I was able to see how I was treating in our context at this time, you know, 2010, I was still deep in, you know, charismatic circles serving at a, on staff at a charismatic church going, okay, I kind of get this because I treat music like this, right? I treat music as the means of grace. I talk about like the presence of God is here. And what do I mean by that? Well, I, I mean, somehow that he's endowing our aesthetic expression with a doorway to communing with him. So that was pretty normal for me, even though like we kind of made fun of people who talked about, well, Christ is president in bread and wine. And you'd go like, really? In the food? But then the people that have grown up with that are going, you really think God shows up in your notes? In your melodies? <laughs> in those sound waves? In those sound waves. It's the same thing, right? So music was the sacrament that bridged together the spiritual domain and the physical domain. It like united those those domains. And so I started doing some digging on it. I had a history background. This is actually before I went to seminary and I'm getting exposed to, you know, traditions outside of myself, really enjoyed learning from Eastern Orthodox. And I actually found a lot of, um, I found a lot of harmony between ideas that we had had in our charismatic circles about, we talk about intimacy with the Lord and the Eastern Orthodox talk about theosis. Right. And so we, we had this very strong sense of what God was actually after was some sort of union that was really like marriage, you know? And then I was like, oh, the Eastern Orthodox, they hold to this too. That's kind of cool. Let me start reading some stuff about this. So, you know, what the, 
part of the thing, and even one of the things I reached out to you about was as I started going through this and reflecting on it again recently, even on some of your talks where, I forget who you were talking to, maybe it was Ron Dart, about you know why in the Reformation, like it was such a big deal, like worth people wanting to kill each other over as to whether or not we were talking about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or symbolism. Started to get it a little bit. I hadn't really understood what all the fuss was about. I was like, well, you do you, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but what I what I started to see was actually like I, I think you've done a good job of like wrestling with these ideas, Paul. Like, what we're really talking about is like the nature of reality, <laughs> yeah, and like how we can actually commune in imminence with a God who is both imminent and transcendent. So. You know, I've been thinking more about this. I want to throw it out, throw it out to you because we didn't have an opportunity to dialogue about it. To me, I see I I've almost wondered if I'm a Calvinist when it comes to the Eucharist. Because Calvin had this kind of unique perspective that didn't fit Luther. It didn't fit the Catholic Church. He's like, it's not just a symbol. Right. It's like nothing is just a symbol, right? right? I mean, I think that's like Jonathan Pajot's project. Who you're, you know, I've watched some of Jonathan's uh, stuff. I'm not as familiar with his work as you, and maybe some of the listeners are. It's just only so much stuff that you can familiar, familiarize yourself with. But I, I feel like his point is like, no, 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 no. Nothing is just symbol. So, you know, I, I guess I've been thinking about how this connection again, going back to spirit and aesthetic and labor is really the means of grace metanoia. Is it the changing of one's perspective? Is it like the reorienting of their meaning making systems towards God? Is that really what we, and it, because we have, you know, I might say, boy, like I felt God in music. And person B might say, I felt him, his presence in the Eucharist. And then, you know, just some transcendentalist might just go, man, I felt God when I was walking through the park. And I go, okay, I'm just processing. Are there these exclusive lists of means of grace? You know, the church has crossed a variety of spectrums has said, you know, that we have these particular sacraments, right? But what are the sacraments? I, I think that's what I'm, I've been wrestling with recently is like, you know, is it just whatever speech act? So like a speech act is an act of communication. And is, is it really, all of these are just important speech acts that I, we bless baptism, we bless the Eucharist because we want to hold on to these historic speech acts, these demonstrations of God's story in a particular way that make us aware of his story. And is in that awareness, is it the going, I want to follow that story? Is that really where the means of grace happens? Well, you know, it's, there's a reason we call, you know, at the end of the Christian story, which is the end of the story, but it's the end of this dispensation, if I may use that word in a non-dispensational way, <laughs> is what's called the consummation. And, yes. And that's a, we use the, about the only other place we tend to use that word is we ask if the marriage was consummated. 
And by that, we mean that the couple had gone through the ceremony, they had made the vows, oaths were taken, oaths were witnessed. And now, and you know, obviously in some traditions, historic traditions, there was even a certain amount of witnessing going on to that the marriage was consummated. And in the Roman Catholic struggling with divorce, you know, then they have annulment, which is like, well, it was never really consummated. So, you know, Tim Keller in the, so I followed Tim Keller's work quite closely in the, in the middle of the aughts. And, and so I listened to his stuff back into, I mean, his church really took off with 9-11. It's kind of an interesting thing that the celebrity atheist took off in 9-11 and Tim Keller. I thought, well, there's an interesting pair. But, but one of the things that Tim Keller noted in a, in a kind of a small group thing that was recorded, and I've never been able to quite find this recording again, was his observation, which I think he gets from Loveless, who was one of his seminary professors, was that revival happens. And that's a word that you can identify oh, yeah, with. And it's definitely. showing up in our talk here. Um, and, and not to be diminished in terms of a, in terms of, well, just a tent and some sawdust. But revival happens when, in a sense, all of these streams, Richard Foster has streams of living water. Just yep, one of my favorites. Somewhere yep. here. Everybody when should read the, that. When all of the streams come together, that's so so and what we mean by revival are these these moments in history you know one happened in the early 20th century in Korea where in a culture where saving face was you know at the top of the at the top of the hierarchy prominent leaders publicly confessed to their sins before people of lower status to themselves it just broke open the culture and a quarter to 40% of the korean population in downstream of this becomes christians you know it happened and you have the great awakenings you know it happened at the beginning of the methodist movement um, you know some of those things happened in the the protestant reformation was enormously messy and and problematic in many ways but it happened there and so there are these moments in time and, and it seems to have, and what happens in these moments is sacramentality becomes full on. And, 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 you know, my, my, by trying to piece, I mean, I got into Jordan Peterson because I saw glimpses of a reunification of some things. And because I was, I was just, I was just continually annoyed by, by the splitness of, of so many areas. And it's like, now these things have to come together. And I saw glimpses of that in Peterson and I wanted to dig in deeper and figure out why this is happening. But no, the, the, so along the way I began to notice, yeah, the, the fight over the sacrament, which in the, is the colloquy at the Marburg, Marburg colloquy. I think that was it just off the top of my head where he had Luther and Zwingli and you know where they where they tried to not let the the reformation split apart which it did you know this was this was all a part a big part of this was about the sacrament and you know i had i had parroted a lot of my rather dismissive language about you know bread into body and some some roman catholics in my comment section kind of called me out on it and said, go listen to Bishop Barron on this. And I listened to, listened to Bishop Barron and I thought, boy, you know, 
Calvin, in a sense, sort of fudges because he says, well, I can't put yes. this together. So let's say that Jesus is spiritually present in the sacrament. It's like, oh boy, there's that word again. Well, what do we mean by that? And I really like, I caught that Dwight Hopkins stuff in your, your first Christ and Culture podcast that you did, where you laid some of that out. And I thought that was really helpful. So, you know, we are, we are in, in a sense, the rebellion or the fall is the, the, the breaking, you know, our break with God. And we're looking for the consummation where we're reunited and heaven and earth are one. And the Bible, the Bible has how many different ways of talking about that? And so I love how, I love how, you know, early in this conversation, you noted, and when you said it, it was like, bang, that's exactly right. Because I was, you know, I was, I dabbled in that charismatic movement too in the eighties. I went to a Christian reformed church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that had some speaking in tongues in it, but it wasn't, you know, it was all, it was much more similar to the charismatic movement rather than Pentecostal, the, the church maintained its reformed doctrine, but, but practiced and, and was, you know, trying to practice openness to the spirit and so on and so forth. So music was very much sacramental in that charismatic movement. I mean, that became worship. And, and still is for many, many people. And, and it became worship because what you had in that experience was, you know, this mystical experience of um, um, I'm lost in worship to God. Now, there was some deconstruction of that, which you can find in, you know, comedy on the Internet about, you know, the smoke machine. And but so so here again, we have, OK, you have. You have that sacrament. And one of the things talking to some Roman Catholics, I, I talked to Carlos, who you can, again, you can find in the Discord server. Um, he's part of Opus Dei, you know, a Catholic revival movement. And talking to some Catholics who are terrifically impressed with miracles surrounding the Eucharist, you know, that, that the Catholics have these traditions of that. And, and it's in a sense parallel to something like the Toronto Blessing. And... Uh -huh. And of course, you know, materialists will look at this and say, no, not gold dust. I have a movie that I got from somebody who did, you know, and I'll, I'll have to put the link of that movie in the notes. Because, Finger of God? What's that? Is it called The Finger of God? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, that was my world. So if anybody checks that out, that was the world I was living in at that time when that, that came out. So. And, and, you know, what, what struck me, and, you know, I can blame some of C.S. Lewis for this, because, of course, I was raised on the Chronicles of Narnia and raised on the little chat. And this, oh, this is just so crazy. The little chat that, that the professor, where the children are staying to, you know, to hide from the blitz of, of London. And, and, and Peter's talking about Lucy. And I think, you know, Lucy has lost her mind because she says that there's a world beyond the wardrobe. And, and the professor uses logic. He says, well, what do you know of Lucy? Well, who would be more liable to lie, Lucy or Edmund? He says, well, certainly Edmund, not Lucy. Lucy is pure in spirit, and Lucy is innocent and clear and vulnerable. She's, she's exactly how we should be, so Lucy wouldn't lie. And so the professor basically says, then what makes you think there isn't a land beyond the wardrobe? Why don't these children learn logic? And 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 so when I, you know, when I look at 
you know, the finger of God and you see gold teeth and gold dust and, you know, naturalistic material, ah, it can't be a miracle. I think you've got the, you've got the, um, you've got the most fragile worldview around because one miracle, your entire world collapses. And, you know, I've, you know, I, you know, whether it was American charismatics or whether it was Haitians, you travel around the world enough and you begin to see this world is a very strange place. And I talked to friends of mine who are so obviously gifted by the fruit of the spirit and, and they're honest and they're humble and they're self-effacing and they're living for others. And they tell me a story about what God has done much to their surprise, but they simply can't deny it because they're honest. They say, well, that can't happen. And it's like, how do you know what can and can't happen? Oh, tiny little center of the universe. You know, are, are you? And then we're to the end of the book of Job. Can you say how this whole thing was put together? And, and yet at the same time, um, you know, so we deconstruct the sacrament or we deconstruct, you know, worship. And, and it makes me think, well, yeah, there's plenty of dissonance in my mind and plenty of questions I can't answer. But how deep down does God go? And, you know, I, I, um, I watched the conversation that Joey and Tyler and Julian did. They posted it on the Randos United channel, which is kind of a sub-channel of I've people who have talked great. to me, talking to each other. And 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 I don't I don't remember exactly what 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 Joey was making this metaphor from, but this kind of tower against tower. And it's and this is what I've noticed in terms of God that it's it's always more than, it's always beyond. And of course, this squares perfectly with Christian theology about you know, all of our ability to know God is always limited, but the, the more we get in, is God, is God, is God, does God take the kinds of risks we say no good God should take? Yes, he does, because he's beyond that. Is he more generous than we can imagine? Yes, he is. Is he more, is, does he, is he hold us to a, a layer of accountability that we think is outrageous and irresponsible? Yes, he does. I mean, and it just keeps scaling up, and so. Why is he not too? That's the question. Exactly. I think. I think that's the thing too. That like my experiences in some really unhealthy facets of charismatic culture. I'll give you one one fun story in particular. I had in my office at the time, and it was a very charismatic church, most ethnically diverse church, which is another strength again. Yes. Yes. You, uh, anyways, a wonderful church in so many regards. So I'm not speaking disparagingly of it. And I, I love the people that are still there. Um, but I was in my office. I had these like, I forget if they were Ikea or world market statues that were sitting on my desk, right? One of them was, you know, they were guy, and maybe some of you guys have this on your own desk. They were popular for a while. One guy playing a saxophone and another guy playing a guitar. And they're, you know, they don't really have faces. They're just black stone statues. And I came into my office one day and I had a note from the intercessory team on my statues that said, well, we were doing intercessory prayer around the church. We came into your office and saw these statues and we're concerned if they, they came from a part of the world that practices, practices witchcraft or anything. We've sensed that there's a Nephilim spirit on these statues. They came from world market. They were probably assembled in Taiwan. I liked them because it just was something to brighten up my pretty Spartan looking office. 
When can we say that when someone is trying to explore the unmapped territory of God and the domain of spirit, and they're doing that with the intuitive side, when can we say, no, you're wrong? Simultaneously, I know it doesn't get necessarily easier when we're using geometry, but still I was able to use geometry perhaps in that instance and go, guys, like they, they didn't come from some witch doctor, you know? They were concerned, they were concerned, like to tie it back to the Dwight Hopkins language, they were concerned that this aesthetic was actually a portal to demons in the spirit, Yeah. right? And I was saying, no, no, no. I mean, it might be a portal to capitalism, you know, cheap labor. <laughs> and some of those demons. <laughs> it could be that, but it's not a Nephilim spirit just because they're tall. And now I, I feel like I feel like I'm meeting my one podcast uh, one time a podcast requirement of mentioning the Nephilim. It's kind of a running gag. I don't know why they come up every time, you know, every time. So that's an example. And for me, I think the project, and even you just sharing that, has helped me is, is helping me in the process flush out what I think I'm trying to work through. Is to be able to tell people, no, I don't think that is God. Because, and what is the criteria that we can evaluate that? Because this is the connection to the sacrament stuff for me. Is I could never, though some people did, somebody that would want to tell me, no, you can't experience the presence of God in musical worship. That's, you know, that's just your own endorphins, you know, that that's just your own hormonal experience of group singing. I think it can be both, you know, so let me just say that. Somebody that tells me, no, you didn't experience God in that because the way that he's present is in this list of sacraments. I got to go, no, you're wrong. Because I've actually seen more spiritual transformation in my life when I would come out of a really, really long time of group worship or even just privately listening to music and something is changing in me. This aesthetic is giving me a window into what I think is the spirit of God and the way I'm evaluating whether it's the spirit of God is it's, is it bearing fruits in my life? You know, you talked about, you know, a bit of revival history and, and someone had come to, either it was John or Charles Wesley, someone concerned about the charismatic experiences that were happening at the revival meetings. And we have indications of like people falling out, what we might say are slain in the spirit or, or people just in the middle of the meeting crying out and screaming, ah! and yeah. they were really concerned by that stuff. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Someone came to either John or Charles Wesley about it. Like, what do you make of that? He's like, oh, I know that guy stopped going to the bar and beating his wife every night after that. I go, okay, is the means of grace a little bit more expansive than we thought? Is it just metanoia? So, you know, you think of even David's tabernacle, which I had traveled around the country telling people, we need to do this. We need to have 24 seven. And even we need to employ people so that and people were really doing this. I was kind of doing this, raising support as I was, as if I was a missionary. There's a thing actually called intercessory missionaries. All right. So down at Kansas City and the International House of Prayer, I've got friends down there. They raise support so that they can pray round the clock. We were doing that because we thought what we need to have happen here is David's tent happen all across the world. And that's going to bring transformation. See what it did, David. Here's part of the story. I mean, and it's kind of crazy that, you know, first Samuel or second Samuel 16, he gets that thing set up the very next chapter. 
the word of the Lord comes to David and it's like, hey, through your descendants, the Messiah is going to come. And we always made that connection because it's like, well, see, God must be pretty impressed with that. The thing that's interesting about it is like David did that and said, yeah, we don't need to do Moses's thing anymore. Let's move the tabernacle. Let's move, let's move the Ark of the Covenant. And the question that runs through my mind, because I sit and I, I was talking with some Catholic people and Orthodox people about just trying to get at, is this really what you're saying when you say Christ is present in the bread and wine? Is that he's present because we think that he is and it's changing our way of thinking? And they're saying, no, 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 that's, it's not that. And my question was like, okay, well, what if they're at Olive Garden? having some breadsticks as they wait for their meal. Could they sit there at Olive Garden and go, man, Christ, you hold everything together. The very molecules that make up this breadstick are being sustained by your very will. I receive this with grace, receive this with thanksgiving, be present there. And some might go, well, no, he's not in the same way that happens when it's in a church, right? a priest blesses it, or there's an invocation. Well, what happens if the invocation doesn't happen? Well, if the invocation doesn't happen, the, the transformation doesn't happen, right? So are we really saying, <laughs> are we really saying that the means of grace is in the speech act that causes us to see a new way? I, I'm, I'm not landing anywhere on that. Right. I'm just, I'm, I'm processing this with another pastor who I know won't um, have me burnt at the stake for <laughs> bringing up bringing up that that question. Is it a new way of seeing it? And if there's a, a thing that becomes obsolete and no longer produces that metanoia, if we have a practice, so I've gotten to the place now where I I really truly feel there was a genuine wor- worship musical worship movement that happened. It really started back in the, the, the Jesus people days, the Lonnie Frisbee days, the Chuck Smith Calvary Chapel, yeah. uh, where they started realizing we need to communicate in the language of the people, yeah. right? Yeah. Same principle behind why the New Testament is written in Koine Greek instead of High Greek. Right. You need to communicate why, because this will produce repentance. And then from that, we get people like Keith Green all the way down to your CCM in the 80s. And then in the 90s, this stuff starts happening with things like the passion movement. And, you know, and now in you you talked about it, you know, you might have most high church that's thinking we need to add a contemporary service. Why do we need to do that? What they're saying is like, we need to copy the charismatic sacrament and bring that sacrament here. But now we've gotten to the point where in my opinion, it's like, now that's become an industry, a massive industry, right? And the primary way that I actually serve in our church is as a pastor overseeing worship and the arts. I get this stuff inundated in my mailbox every day. Buy this, check out this, this massive industry. And I feel like Isaiah one going, I don't want your music. Like God's going, I don't want your music. I want that annoya. So you know, I've just been thinking about, well, what, what does it mean for us to actually be able to say God is present, it's affecting my thoughts and my values, it's changing my aesthetic and my labor. How can we also say to people, I don't think that's God? Because part of even what you were saying about critique against progressive woke religions is that there's elements there that you say, this doesn't come from God, it's leading to this. How do we sort through that? That's the $64,000 question right now. 
I've been in my, so I have my regular stream and then I have my Sunday school stream and, and my Sunday school is sort of a place where it's kind of an estuary between all the stuff I do during the week with, you know, all these videos that I make and all these conversations that I have. And then, and then the Bible, and then, you know, a handful of folks at Living Stones who are um, mostly, mostly African-American ladies over 70. That's most of my Sunday school class. And some of these, some of these women have been, you know, they grew, some of them grew up in Jim Crow South. Um, but many of them have been in church all their lives, but in very different churches than mine. Some of them don't even come to my worship service. They just come for Sunday school and then they go to their own black church after, <laughs> after that. So it's a, it's a fascinating group, but you know, so I've been, you know, I've had Owen Barfield and, you know, original participation and then final participation and all of this going through. And I've been, I've for the last few weeks in that Sunday school class, I go through scripture often fairly slowly. I spent 75 weeks in the book of revelation at one point. Um, which how any Sunday school class could ever bear that. I have no idea, but these people do. They're Calvin said, Calvin said, I'm not touching that book, but Paul oh, Vanderclay yeah. said, come to Sunday school. <laughs> well, it started because uh, one guy named HJ Hicks, who I baptized in his seventies, he uh, worked a um, bunch of small jobs around, um, you know, worked for auto dealers and stuff, washing cars and driving and things like that. Um, his wife, his wife was coming to church here, but he had never been baptized. And when I first met him, he had like four copies of the Bible comparing things. He was always trying to fill things out. And I, I'd always ask at the end of a book, because I'd go through book serially, I'd say, you know, what book should we study next? And H.J. said, not Revelation. And I thought, we got to. And so we spent 75 weeks in it. It was actually about 35 weeks in Isaiah that almost killed some people. But anyway, so I've been, I've been in the gospel of John in Jesus cleansing the temple, which is a, which is a, something that I've preached quite a bit on in the synoptics over the years. Cause Palm Sunday comes up every year and it's like, Rip, there you go. Um, but I've been in the, I've been in the, in the gospel of John. And so I've had Owen Barfield rolling around in my head. And so you have all of these issues that are very sacramental in nature going on in that moment because so you can understand the, you know, the, let's say the Vatican II uh, mass in English adaptation that the community is doing with being able to purchase animals and exchange money for the sake of this massive wealthy diaspora Jew population that wants to celebrate the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem. And so that function of exchanging money and purchasing animals for sacrifice is an important sacrifice given the entire history of what has happened. So you have synagogue worship going on, but the temple still remains, and you have that interchange. And, and so for the last two weeks, I've been going through that in Sunday school where, where Jesus drives them out, and it's like, what's going on with that? And then, and then the Gospel of John mentions, you know, quotes, you know, zeal, zeal for his father's house. And now zeal is a trigger word for violence. You know, Phineas, if you read N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul, Wright nicely lays that out in that book about, you know, zeal is sticking a spear through a the Jewish zealots. boy and a Moabite girl in a tent in the middle of coitus. There you go. There's a word picture for you, baby. Um, <laughs> right into the ground. That then becomes this action that defines the word. Now, when I asked my Sunday school about it, they use a psychological term. So, so we've got all of these back and forth over this 
participation line that that Barfield notes. Because let's say, and I use the example of let's say the neighbor of the Jewish family going to the Passover, the neighbor who's a Gentile says, boy, those Jews, they really live well. They really, their families are really together, you know. There's really something about that. So maybe I'll maybe I'll go down to their temple. He's a pagan after all. So hey, go down to the temple and offer sacrifice and get some of that good family mojo coming my way. And and so he says, well, I, I, I raise pigs, so I'm going to take a pig to the temple. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> no pig sacrifices yeah. at the temple. And he's like, well, why? Well, in a sense, it's sort of like if my water pump goes out in my car and I think, well, I just replaced a water pump in my dishwasher at home. I'll just, it only costs 40 bucks. That mechanic's trying to cost me, you know, make me spend 200 for my water pump for my, for my Mazda. So I'll just take that water pump from home and give it to my mechanic. Say, here, use this one. And he'll say, oh no, you need a special water pump to work in that car. And so this whole question of, do you have communion at Olive Garden? And why is that different? And we're especially being, why is that different from in the church? And we're especially having that highlighted when, so a little story about the Orthodox before I ever heard of Peugeot or Peterson or anything, talking to a, a colleague of mine as a good friendship with an Orthodox priest near here. And the Orthodox priests, you know, my friend was talking to him. He was a planted a church during the seeker movement. And, and uh, the Orthodox priest said something like, well, we're not ready to do evangelism here. Well, why not? Well, we don't have our cathedrals and our, and our monast monast you know, you know, monasteries built. And it's like, and, and so this this line that Barfield has of of participation and the splitness and all of that, this is what we're dealing with, and and that line is all over the Bible too, because as you said, the beginning of you know in the prophets when they say, "Hey, I want mercy, not sacrifice, or obedience, not sacrifice," says, and and that gets translated into synagogue worship, where in a sense. The, the observance and the rehearsal of the Torah and the prayers and the songs are replacing the altar and the animal and the blood and the fire. And, okay, so now what are the connections between these two things? And what is the connection between, you know, kind of these mental acts of, of metanoia? So this week I'm preaching on, so you have Jairus and then the woman with the issue of blood and then Jairus's daughter being brought back to life. You have all that put together in the Gospel of Mark. And, and so, you know, Jesus gets delayed by the woman with the issue of blood. And that is the freakiest, the, the miracles that like Jordan Peterson says, the deeper you go into the Bible, there's no bottom to it because the thought that this woman would unbeknownst to the son of man, creep up on him and touch him. And he says, who touched me? <laughs> I felt dunamis. Yes. First first use of the word dunamis in the Gospel of Mark. I felt dunamis pass out of me. And it's like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> how is Jesus, how does Jesus not know? Oh, he only acts like he doesn't know. Well, maybe, uh -huh. but that's not the way he acted. No. And 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 how is dunamis somehow disconnected? this release of dunamis somehow disconnected from his consciousness. What's that about? And did she trigger it by, and, <laughs> and, and he says, you know, and he said, well, it was your faith. Yeah. That's all. Oh, what the heck is that? But a mental thing. And, and then, you know, they get to, they get down to Jairus's house 
and the mourners are there already. The ceremonial mourners are there, and they're already carrying on. And 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 uh, we're too late. And Jesus says, you know, believe, you know, yeah, this, yeah. And 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 then of course, you know, gets rid of the crowd, goes into a room, select disciples, mother and father, daughter, you know, Tabitha, you know, awake, and bang, you know, and it's like. This world is strange. It is. And there's something really deep. And, and the whole Bible starts with the God Elohim speaks yes. and Tohu Avohu, let there be day and light and darkness separate and dark, you know, dry ground and, and seas separate. And this is all happening by speaking. So <laughs> all of this stuff is in here. And the <laughs> fact that we're groping and stumbling and fighting. Yeah, it's 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 perfectly expected, and that we don't know what's going on. That's absolutely what you should expect if you read the Bible. And for me, then as a Calvinist, I, yeah. in a sense, come with John Calvin and say, "Yeah, he's spiritually present." Can I explain that further? I don't know if I ever will be able to. And and so then, also as a Calvinist, then I finally rest on you know what. I'm finally saved by the mercy and grace of God. And I, you know, that's very low resolution. (laughs) And certainly I'll try to up the resolution if I can, but that's finally where I rest. It's in his grace. And so if he's using Orthodox and Catholics and Pentecostals and fundamentalists, and he's, and if he's, if all of these issues are being actually worked out by all of these different regions of the church. Okay, Lord. It's like my new Testament prof said, when we were taught studying eschatology and we're looking at the exegetical value of the, of the millennium is, is this a literal millennium or not? And, so he said, because we're all amillennials at Calvin Seminary, and, he's, and my New Testament prof says, you know, if Jesus comes back and says, we're going to do a, a literal thousand-year reign, go along with him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so we're, you know, we, we, we're, we're very small creatures who can't see well and, and don't know much. And, and, and by God's grace, hopefully we learn and can contribute, but this drama is going on around us and and yeah so i i nothing that i have done in the last 2 years has made me any less a christian or in fact any less comfortable in the tradition that i was born into yes so i don't know maybe that's a good place to end we're going on 2 hours yeah. here which doesn't surprise me no. any 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 last things you want to throw out there no, I th- I think I mean yeah we could, we could do a multi-volume discography <laughs> on this because there are things I mean I did I I don't want to start unpacking this stuff but I was when you said dunamis I'm like I knew what dunamis was probably at ten years old even though I didn't know what the beatitudes were in my tradition because we yeah. talked about this stuff and even when you were throwing out you know well what what did God do when He brought reality out of you know it, it brought from His he himself, his ultimate reality, was bringing about a reality that is external. Uh, I don't know if that's even the right the right phrase for it. What did he do? He spoke. Oh, man, that's like in our house. It was like, this is why you have to watch your confession. You know, this was prosperity gospel. And I would, I would, 
people always think about prosperity gospel, they think about cars and stuff, but where prosperity gospel began as part of the word of faith movement was you noticing that, like, how is it that this gal's faith drew this dunamis out of Christ? And there was this deep connection between the words that we spoke. You know, what did God do? God spoke reality to being. What do you need to do? You need to speak reality into being. When I hear Jordan Peterson talk about the logos and he's, he's not really getting it in the historic Christian sense, you know, but he's talking about essentially the power of words. I'm, I'm getting triggered because I'm thinking about <laughs> my Kenneth Copeland daily devotionals and what they were trying to get at too. And in our house, like my mom will laugh at this if she listens to it. We weren't allowed to say I'm sick. We just couldn't say that. That was a confession that would bring about a certain reality. You couldn't say I was sick. You could say, boy, I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'm feeling as if, oh gosh, how would we have to put it? Like I'm experiencing these symptoms now, you know, or something like that. Or you'd have to word it as, boy, actually what we would say is (coughs) I'm healed. Like you'd have to frame it that way. (laughs) I remember the first time being at a, as a kid at another Christian's house who didn't come from our stream. And he said to his dad, dad, I don't feel so good. And I was waiting. I was like, why didn't his dad correct him? He's going to bring about this reality by speaking it, you know? So that that's, that's probably why part of my project, and I do think like we have to wrestle with this because you're laughing, your listeners are going to, many of them are going to laugh and, and rightfully say, I don't think you saying I'm sick is going to change whether or not those physical symptoms come about in your life. But, but, right? How do we say that? How do we how do we tell somebody? How do I work through with somebody that's grown up in that stream like I have? My wife, she went to Oral Roberts University, you know, on a volleyball scholarship. Yep, yep. The praying hands. She got kicked out of class one time. I'll I'll, I'll wrap up with this. <laughs> she got got kicked out of class one time because they were teaching in one of her Bible classes. It's not a joke. That God was like a pop machine. Okay, you put your money in, right? You give. You tell God what you want and what comes out is what you've put in, right? It's the seed faith. You put in this and there's this connection between faith and money. It's very convenient because it makes pastors really, really rich that are get in those airplanes. congregations. Yeah, get some get some airplanes. But I, I don't think it's all intentionally malevolent. I do think many people actually believe that. She got kicked out. She goes, well, what happens if I press the button for a Coke and I get a root beer instead? Like, get out of here. Yeah, kicked out of class. So we 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 have this this background that is really difficult for people to imagine. What I want to be able to work through is the ability to tell somebody, no, I don't think that's God. You're in unmapped territory here. You're finessing this thing. You're intuiting it. I've intuited many things wrong about God because I was actually experiencing anxiety. The voice of the Lord told me this, that might be your depression. You know, I heard you say to somebody recently, like, well, when I interact with my wife, I'm using unmapped territory, right? This is the spirit of finesse. But also I, when I listened to that, I was going, well, not entirely, because I think you could also do things like take some personality tests, right? I, those are, you know, people have critiques about those, but I found many of them to be very helpful whether it's taking a Myers-Briggs test, maybe it's doing the Enneagram to help me understand some proclivities my wife has and I might have. And now it's map territory. And now I know, like, and we both know, and we've improved in our marriage because of that. 
So I think the project I'm working through, I don't want to speak for you, but I do think it's kind of what you're working through is to be able to tell people, okay, like you've shut off this domain as a guy, God doesn't exist, right? So Peterson's helped open that thing up because he's not like anti-science and he's coming bringing evolutionary psychology and people that realize that's mapped territory. It's true. It works. But this guy, he's also bringing in this unmapped territory. You're doing the same thing. And I think part of the motivation like pastorally is to also be able to go and say to people, I don't think that's God. But how do we say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is in some sense the, I heard, heard the beginning of Mary was talking with Karen and Karen's the Meaning Code channel, which is another channel that is kind of, I talked to Mary and I talked to Karen. So the people that I've talked with are now talking together. And because I don't have enough room on my YouTube channel, they're doing it themselves. Yeah. And, and you know, so Mary began that interview by talking. I mean, the, the question, C.S. Lewis says that pantheism is sort of basic religion. And, and right now, in terms of post-Christianity, a lot of people get excited about pantheism. And it's kind of, I think, a response to secularism. And they kind of go off new agey in that direction. And the difficulty is, is not so much saying what's God. And this sounds dramatic in a secular world where we, we suspect that there is no God or we believe that there is no God. And we suspect and fear that maybe there might be. Jordan Peterson says that. But, but the real question is figuring out, okay, what is not God? Yes. Yes, exactly. And how does that work? And for that, I need a telescope and a microscope, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I've been thinking a lot about that because the transcendence of God, that sense of looking up, you know, as he said to, said to John, come up here, come up now, yeah. right? Like there's a coming up, there's Isaiah 6 in the Holy of Holies. What am I doing here? I'm a man with, you know, take the coal and cleanse my lips. Yep. Right. And the angels are covering their eyes, even as they flap yes. around with their other wings. There's a sense of, I think I heard you, you or somebody else say this, holy, holy, holy. That was a way of saying, right? Yep. Like yep. In, for the ancient Hebrew people, something is a hole is deep. It's deep, deep. And it's the deepest of deep. That's it right. doesn't go beyond that, right? right. And so we, we want to be able to, with a telescope, look beyond. Uh, and I think maybe that's one of the things charismatics, more mystics do is they go, the imminent frame, that's not all that there is. Here's some gold dust. <laughs> You're like, what? What, are, what am I supposed to do that? Here's a feather that showed up. Here is people laughing in the spirit. I mean, there was even weird stuff that like even as deeply weird as I was that I was able in our circles to go, that's not true. Things called toking the ghost. Have you heard of this? No. Toking the ghost. So you remember, maybe you remember some of the, <laughs> we're going so long. I'm sorry, Paul. No, it's okay. But, yeah. That's what Yep. That's what it's for, right? Toking the ghost. So there was this movement in charismatic circles called like being drunk in the spirit. Maybe you've heard of that. You'd see meetings of people. Rodney Howard Brown was one of the pastors. And at his meetings, people would all of a sudden... It happened with Kenneth Hagin meetings too. Ken Hagin was another um, faith preacher. People would just start laughing. Laughing uncontrollably. Right. You guys can YouTube this. There's wild... And they're really funny to watch, actually. Entire auditoriums of people rolling around on the floor laughing. Okay? Somebody took it to the next level and go, why not just be, instead of drunk in the spirit, how about high? in the spirit. And I'm not joking, Paul. There was a movement. It's still around today. It's called toking the ghost. 
and people will actually like i had people at meetings come up to me with like an imaginary doobie in their fingers going do you want to take a hit of the holy spirit and they would do it and be like Dude, he's so good tripping out uh, i'll give you another guy to look up oh what's the guy's name um scott crowder okay so i once went to a conference i was invited to lead worship at this conference in nebraska the weekend before they it might not be scout last scott the last name is definitely crowder and he's actually like massively into theology too which is interesting the weekend before they had the scott crowder in who is into this toking the ghost thing and like people were what I was told was, yeah, last weekend we we were toking the ghost and, you know, old Bill here got rode around like a horse around the sanctuary and it was so fun. We were laughing and rolling around and we were like, so how did I get to telling you that? You got to be able to say to somebody, that's not true. That's not good. The spirit, how do we do that though? Because some of them, like I remember one of these instances at another meeting, <laughs> All I did was church for most of my life. <laughs> you know? But um, people say I should get out more. Uh, another church <laughs> meeting, a different church, a guy like we called it manifesting in the spirit. Right. They started manifesting. Right. He was laughing hysterically, rolling on the floor. And it was like this really quiet prayer meeting. And I was in leadership of this prayer meeting that night. And I was going to go over and tell him, you got to stop, go outside. Um, can't. It's such a distraction right now. And I went over to the other guy that was a leader. It was his home church that it was happening at. And he's like, let it happen. And I was so frustrated. I followed up with him after. He's like, man, I, I feel like I should have stopped that. You know, it was such a distraction. It was taking away from people being and praying to, to Jesus. It was a, I felt like it might've been demonic. He's like, well, yeah, man, like the guy came back to church the next week. You know what he told us? He came into the service high and drunk. He's been addicted to all of these things. He got hit with the Holy Spirit in that moment, and he has not touched a pill or a bottle since then. Like, oh, I guess I'm glad I didn't stop it. But I, (laughs) simultaneously, I go, all right, there's also weird, I I don't know what to do about it. But you're right. There is a sense in which we need to say, that isn't God. That isn't, that's a created thing not the creator. It's not the one above all. It's not ultimate reality. We're deriving these images from some other spirit and we have to like test the spirits. That is a, also a New Testament uh, injunction that we test the spirits. So I guess maybe part of the work we're doing is testing the spirits, right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's a weird, it's a weird and wonderful world. And I, you know, I, I, I had the same experience once I made some disparaging comments about Jim and Tammy Baker, because, mm-hmm. you know, who, how, how is it not easy to poke fun of those two and their entire story? And then somebody, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, my parents became Christians because of them. And, you know, and if it weren't for them and that crazy Crying ministry on TV with the makeup flowing and all of the insanity. God uses it. He does. And, and so doesn't mean uh, it's the same thing as blessing it though, too. That's, because that's, that's right. what I've had to tell people. You know, they come from these revival meetings. And I just saw, you know, during that time, there was this revival when I was heavily in charismatic circles, a, a revival happening in Lakeland, Florida, with a guy named Todd Bentley. 
And in the middle of that, the guy was, and I don't like speaking negatively about people. I'm just using this as an example. Todd had an affair with his wife during, on his wife during the revival meetings. And it just came out. They, he went through some restoration process, jumped right back into the fray of ministry. And now there's just been reports of the last couple of weeks about him you know, propositioning interns, male interns for homosexual acts and all sorts of other sexual deviance. And yet these crazy things were happening um, at, at, this, at this revival. And when that all came down, there was a lot of hurt people that had attended those, maybe even became yep. followers of Jesus at those, maybe even yep. experienced something miraculous. And they go, yep that all fake and you know yeah. my encouragement as i came out of that to people was like god's god's just really frugal like he, he will use he will use <laughs> means that are very economical right um but that doesn't mean it's a wholesale endorsement so. i love that i'm gonna rip that off please do <laughs> i I, pl- I ripped plenty of your stuff paul so that's just very frugal <laughs> And he's, and that's the thing. And he's generous. I mean, it's both. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank Paul. you, Paul. This is a blast. I hope, uh, I hope to, we can stay in, in conversation. Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll end the recording now and yeah. we'll, and just keep God bless you and your podcast. And I'll put the links down below. Cool. And, awesome. um, yeah, this was so good. Thanks. I so, I so appreciate your story because you know we we tend to we automatically develop these low resolution pictures of each other, which are just low resolution. But <laughs> yes, see, right. but but just hearing your story and well, now you know now it's like if I have a if I have a question about someone in this whole side of the world, <laughs> yes, it's feel like, free to come to me. <laughs> I know who I can ask because this dude knows people. He's oh, gosh. been places. He's yes. seen stuff. And most people have no clue when they meet me now or they listen to the podcast now. I mean, I, I've hinted and I've shared with other people on other podcasts, like some of my, my backstory, but it doesn't come up because you usually, these worlds usually don't go together, sadly, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. that's, I think my long-term hope, I'm in a really, you know, it's a free church. It's part of the, e, you know, evangelical free denomination, though we don't have like, you know, we don't go, we're EFCA here. Um, most, many probably half the congregation is more Calvinist, the other half Arminian, some quasi-charismatic, some maybe cessationist. You know, people would have no idea that about me. So it is kind of fun. I, I don't tell these stories publicly often. So it'll be, it'll be fun. It'll be fun thank, to hear. Thank you for yeah. sharing them. Because Thanks. I think, I think actually amongst the people that listen to mine, there are very, there, there are some people that grew up with this. And so yes. It's helpful yeah. to know that, well, there's other people in this whole conversation that know this world too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul Andrew Clay. If you have follow-up questions about any of the things we talked about today, don't hesitate to reach out to me. One of the best ways to do that is via Twitter. I always leave that in the description. Uh, you can find me simply at Paul Anleitner. Pretty simple if you can figure out how to spell my last name. <laughs> I want to conclude today by thanking the Patreon community, those people that are supporting this podcast on Patreon. Can't do it without you. I want to give extra special thanks to Paul, Elizabeth, and Sam, those of you that have gone above and beyond in your support uh, and have made uh, you know a pretty good monthly contribution to making this podcast happen. I appreciate you guys. 
You guys are helping to make this thing happen for other people and it means the world to me and I think other people will thank you too for it. So thank you. If you want to get involved in the Patreon community, you can find a link to my Patreon page in the description. Your support is more than welcome and it's sincerely appreciated. I think hopefully these conversations and the work that we're doing through this podcast are valuable and they're valuable to other people. And so I appreciate that uh, there are people out there that think it's valuable enough to support it. Thank you guys. Appreciate all of you. If you can't do that quite yet, that's totally understandable. But one way you could support this work is by even just leaving a review on Apple Podcasts with whatever stars you think this deserves. It just helps people find it. So if it's been helpful for you, that's one way you can help other people find what I hope is a, a helpful helpful podcast that uh, that's going to equip you guys to navigate some of your tough questions. So thank you. And until next time, we will talk again soon.